This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is John Carreyrou. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal and author of the book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. I could have spoken to John for another nine hours. I found the book absolutely fascinating. I plowed through it on Labor Day weekend and really, really enjoyed it. Not just because of how revealing it is of what turned out to be a giant, pick pick the metaphor, Enron, Bertie Madoff, whatever, a giant fraud, but it reads like a thriller. It's a real page turner. There are some giant surprises throughout the book. Lots of people see their reputation damaged and destroyed. It's amazing. And as somebody who is also an investor, I can't help but notice how many times there's red flag after red flag after red flag that are excused, rationalized, ignored, somehow shunted aside instead of, hey, that's a big red flag. Maybe we shouldn't put a billion dollars into this nonsensical company that doesn't do any of the things it promises it can do. Anyway, I highly recommend the book. Whether you've read the book or not, you're going to find this conversation fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with John Carreyrou. My extra special guest this week is John Carreyrou. He began his career in journalism in 1994. After he graduated from Duke, he joined the Dow Jones Newswires. Shortly after, he moved to European version of the Wall Street Journal in Brussels, eventually going to Paris to cover French business, terrorism, and everything in between. He was appointed deputy bureau chief for Southern Europe in 2003. Eventually, he became the Wall Street Journal's health and science bureau chief in New York, He has won numerous awards in journalism, including the Pulitzer Prize twice. If this sounds like the perfect background for any writer curious about the blood-testing startup Theranos, well, it turned out that is exactly right. Uh, The unicorn turned out to be a fraud, which was broken by Carreyrou in the pages of the Wall Street Journal. He has written a best-selling book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in Silicon Valley, about the entire Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos saga, John Carreyrou, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I have to start out by saying I love the book. It was on my list of 10 to read this summer, and I just plowed through it over Labor Day weekend. There's so much material to cover. It's such a fascinating story. Let's just go back to the beginning. How does Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes out in Silicon Valley first come on your radar? It was uh, mid-December 2014, and I was on the subway uh, commuting back from uh, my office in Midtown Manhattan to Brooklyn, where I live, reading The New Yorker magazine. Mm -hmm. And in that issue was a long profile of Elizabeth Holmes by Ken Oletta. Skeptical or glowing? It was mostly, mostly glowing with some, I have to say, with some skeptical passages that I immediately picked up on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that it was, it was an entertaining read and interesting that there were, as I just said, some, some, uh, things that struck me as odd in that story. Um, uh, one of the ways she, she 
described, you know, how her blood testing uh, technology work or how she worked, how she summed it up, uh, sounded to me like a, a high school uh, chemistry student as opposed to a sophisticated, you know, lab scientist slash inventor. Mm-hmm. Um, but more than any particular thing, it was this notion that uh, a college dropout, someone who'd had two semesters of chemical engineering, had dropped out and then gone on and invented groundbreaking new science that was going to revolutionize, you know, lab testing. So let me jump in right here. So she goes to Stanford, finishes, drops out after her freshman year. She's got no medical training. She's got no organic chemistry, biology, um, blood chemistry. None of the things one would normally think would go into complex medical device manufacturing. This isn't a software startup where you could just, hey, anybody could code and whether you have the academic credentials or not is irrelevant. This is a serious science, isn't it? Right. She she had zero qualifications. I mean, she had, had literally had two uh, undergraduate uh, courses with the same professor, Channing Robertson, who ended up being you know her first enabler. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's and, an interesting choice of words. Why, right. why did you select enabler? Well, so he was for uh, those listening who aren't familiar with him. Channing Robertson was uh, a rock star, star right? Rock, rock star, star of this of the uh, Stanford Engineering School faculty uh, had been an expert witness in the late '90s uh, for the state of Minnesota and its uh, tobacco litigation, and um, you know also w- was really popular with students. He had a way with students. He connected with them and. Mm-hmm. Um, She'd taken two two courses with him, and then you know came back with this cockamamie uh, patent in um, after her her summer in Singapore, working at a lab in Singapore. Uh, so we're now in in the fall of two thousand three, and the 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 patent was for this device that she envisioned, which was essentially a wristband that would have micro needles that uh, would come out and insert themselves into your wrist and uh, draw micro amounts of blood and and then uh, diagnosed whatever ailed you and cure you simultaneously. Um, and it was clear, I mean, this was science fiction to anyone involved, right. uh, an engineer or a lab scientist, uh, clear that it was not feasible and probably ever feasible, at least not for, for decades. And, uh, you know, he, he chose to um, go along with it. And, and uh, encouraged her to drop out, or at least didn't discourage her to drop mm-hmm. out, and then accompanied her on pitches uh, to VCs. And so he gave her credibility. At that point, she's 19 years old, um, and he's the star of the, the Stanford faculty. And then he joins the board, and he stays on there with her, accompanies her for the, the next 12 years. Wow. Uh, you know, he is for sure her, her original enabler. So one of the questions I was going to ask you, but you kind of hinted at the answer already, you know, when did you first start to smell that something was amiss? But it's pretty clear, you're, you're saying right from the beginning, this, well, this struck you as a little off? I, yes, but uh, to be honest, I probably would not have done anything with my uh, intuition had I not gotten approached by a source who was a uh, pathologist in the Midwest, uh, who I'd gotten to know the year before. He moonlighted as the writer of this obscure blog called Pathology Blog, which he spelled B-L-A-W-G. And uh, I'd gotten him a year prior to, to explain to me some of the complexities of lab billing for a, a series on Medicare, Medicare fraud I'd been doing at the time. 
And he had read the New Yorker story about Elizabeth Holmes too, and had immediately been dubious even more than me uh, in that, you know, he was much more familiar with, with the intricacies of lab science than I was. And he wrote a skeptical item on his blog. And uh, this guy named Richard Fuse, who's a, a pretty big character in my book, mm-hmm. by the way, uh, had been a, a childhood neighbor of Elizabeth and her parents, immediately got in touch with the pathology blogger and told him, you're on the right track. I think Theranos is a scam. You should keep digging into this. And uh, Fuse had uh, been involved in litigation with Elizabeth Holmes. He had patented uh, a part of her vision uh, that had caused her to sue him. And she had steamrolled him with David Boyes. Uh, David Boyes had become her attorney and Theranos's attorney. And, and they'd really steamrolled Fuse in this litigation. And during the course of the litigation, Fuse had become convinced as a uh, actually trained doctor mm-hmm. and medical inventor that Theranos was a scam. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. Let's talk about some of those secrets and lies. The question that I still haven't come to a, a solid answer was simply this. Was, was this a scam from day one, or did this eventually morph into... A scam. What, what it was you- the latter. It, it wasn't a scam from day one in that she didn't drop out of Stanford at 19 in late 2003, premeditating a long con that would defraud investors and eventually put patients in harm's way. That, that was not in her thoughts back then, even though she's never spoken to me. Um, I know that she dropped out uh, wanting to become a successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Her mm-hmm. idol was Steve Jobs. She worshipped Apple, and she wanted to follow in his footsteps. And she also had this, you know, this notion that she should do good uh, for society because her, her father had uh, worked at the State Department and various other government agencies and, and uh, provided, um, you know, help in, in disaster-torn areas. And there were photos of him, and, and he had raised her... Uh, with this notion that she should live a, a life of purpose and mm-hmm. and that she should make her mark and not just by getting rich. And so uh, biotechnology, in her mind, was was the gateway to achieving both, becoming rich, like her ancestors, the Fleischmanns, had once been, and also doing good. And so that's the way in which she was different from Steve Jobs. She wanted a product that would, that would do good for society. Um, and, uh, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't a fraud from the beginning. She had she had good intentions. It became a fraud with the years as she confronted, uh, you know, failures and difficulties because science is hard. Medicine is hard. Science she, is hard. So she, let, let yeah. me ask you about that. A number of people that you write about in the book point out that the reason we do venous drawing, the reason we take blood from your arm and fill three big vials is that's a clean sample of blood. When you do a pinprick, you're damaging tissue. Even if you clean the surface of the skin, it's not as clean a sample of, of blood. So it makes, makes me raise the question, isn't it kind of reckless to say, oh, I could, you know, I could run into medicine and figure this out despite lacking a background? How do you, right, how do you it's rationalize a, I that? mean, it's hubris and arrogance. It's incredibly naive uh, to think that people hadn't tried uh, capillary blood draws. Mm-hmm. They had. And and one of the problems 
with them, the biggest problem is is what you say, which is that the risk uh, that basically capillary dro- capillary blood is not as pure as venous blood. It's polluted by uh, tissue uh, from cells and and from skin. And uh, that that stuff interferes with uh, the blood tests. And so uh, one of the the biggest problems uh, when you try to do a blood test, uh, the the biggest problem is the potassium blood test, because what happens is when you milk uh, blood from the, the finger, you cause the red blood cells in the blood to burst and the bursting uh, causes a release of potassium. And so it increases uh, the concentration of potassium in your sample and, and the, the concentration of potassium becomes artificially high in that little blood sample. And in fact, that is one of the, the problems that uh, Theranos ran into when it started going live with its blood tests in Walgreens stores in late 2013 was this hemolysis problem. And this is, in hindsight bias, that was well known for decades. This is not a new discovery. Right. I mean, uh, the, the, the problems with capillary blood draws were well known among lab scientists, for sure. And then there's another uh, problem that you haven't talked about, which doesn't have to do necessarily with the fact that it was blood pricked from the finger that her vision revolved around. It's, it's the, how small the sample was. She, she wanted, you know, to be able to do hundreds of tests from a drop or two of blood. And uh, no one had figured out how to do that many tests from that small a sample. The basic reason is that there are about half half a dozen big classes of blood tests. And each one of these classes of blood tests requires completely different laboratory techniques and laboratory instruments. And so once you've done a couple of blood tests that are, say, immunoassays, mm-hmm. and you try to do blood tests from a different category, such as general assays or hematology tests, you no longer have any blood left because you've used your small sample to you do those immunoassays. You consume it to, do the, to right. do the test. And and then you need more blood because the, the other tests require completely different methods and completely different instruments. And so no one had able to, been able to crack that nut. They'd been trying to do so for more than two decades in industry and uh, in universities. And she came along and, and claimed that she had solved all these problems. Even though she hadn't solved a single one of these problems, she just stated her intention to solve them and money flowed in. Is that is that a fair statement? Well, she not, I mean, it's not quite. I mean, that, that, would, that would be more accurate than what she did <laughs> had, had she stated her intention to solve them. She asserted that she had solved them. She said, I have solved this nut that no one on earth has solved until now, I've cracked it. And, and Was that uh, true? Did it, she crack it? Was, it was completely untrue. So back to the question about not a fraud from the beginning, when did it become clear that none of their products worked and they started lying to partners, potential investors, even employees that, hey, we, we got a dead parrot on our hands here? Right. So the, the lying actually started very early on. I mean, the, the book opens, uh, the, the prologue is a scene that takes place in late 2006. And it's the CFO, the chief financial officer of Theranos at the time, learning that these demos that he's, bringing, he's been bringing prospective uh, investors around for, for about eight months, uh, are not 
really real. They're rigged. They're, they're, it's they're, a they're, fake machine. It spits out a fake piece of paper. Right. Part of the demo is real. The microfluidics part of the demo is real. But then the result at the end is a pre-recorded result. So it's essentially not the result from the blood that you see flowing through the cartridge. And so he goes to her and he says, you know, we can't keep doing this. The, the investors I'm bringing around are under the impression that this is totally real. And it's not. It's half fake. So that, you know, that's essentially securities fraud. That's lying to investors. We have to stop. And she turns ice cold and says to him, you know, you're not a team player. I think you should leave right now. And it's very clear from her demeanor and from her tone of voice that she doesn't just mean leave leave her office. She means leave the company. You're fired. And he's just been fired. And and so the 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 unethical behavior and the lying goes back as far as easily 2006, meaning you know, less than two years into the life of the company. And just to to elaborate a little bit, uh, the technology, there were three iterations of the technology. There was a real attempt at micro, using microfluidics, which is uh, the repurposing of the microfabrication techniques that the computer, the chi- computer chip industry uh, pioneered. Mm-hmm. Uh, lab scientists realized they could use those microfabrication techniques to create tiny channels through which you could put minute amounts of liquids. She she made a real effort in the early years of her company at doing a microfluidic device and hit a wall. They just needed many more years and she didn't have the patience and she was probably under pressure from investors. And so they stopped that effort mm-hmm. about a year after that scene where she fires the CFO and pivoted to the second iteration of the technology, which was a converted glue dispensing robot. It was it was a glue dispensing robot that a Theranos engineer had had purchased from a company called Fisnar in New Jersey and essentially repurposed to be a blood testing machine. He affixed a, a pipette to the robotic arm which had 3 degrees of of motion and then he reprogrammed it to to mimic what a lab scientist would do to test blood at the bench. And she disguised it with this sleek black and white case that she got a, a well-known industrial engineer to design. And that was called, she called it the Edison, <laughs> named it after Thomas Edison. And um, the, the, the instrumentation, basically the, the techniques of the Edison were, it was nothing new. It was something, you know, uh, uh, chemiluminescent immunoassays. Uh, was a, a lab testing technique that had been pioneered in the early 80s. And that was what the Edison did. And the third iteration? And the third iteration. So the Edison could only do immunoassays, which are this one class of blood test. And uh, of course, you know, she wanted something because she was beginning to claim that she had something that could do all the blood tests. So she needed a machine that could do more than just one class of blood tests. So the work on what she called the mini lab began in late 2010. And that work, you know, continued until recently. Um, and they've never gotten the mini lab to work. It's it's a bigger machine than the Edison, and it's an attempt to miniaturize all these laboratory instruments that are used to do these different classes of blood tests. And they've not never gotten it to work. What about they, the commercial stuff they were buying, the commercial machines, and then diluting the right. small blood sample? And so that became necessary because I think normal people, if they haven't gotten their device to work yet, or will wait until they get it to work to commercialize it, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree that that most most sure. people would do that, especially Hopefully. especially in the realm of medicine, where where your product actually you know has impact on people's lives? Well, she didn't do that. She uh, went live with her vaunted finger stick blood tests in the fall of 2013 in Walgreens stores in Northern California and Arizona. And because the mini lab was just a prototype that didn't work at the time, 
what she did, what she and her boyfriend ordered Theranos employees to do was to- That's Sonny Balwani. So, Sonny Balwani, her boyfriend, her number two executive. COO, yeah. They ordered uh, people in the lab to, to hack machines made by the German company Siemens mm-hmm. um, and uh, to adapt them to small finger stick samples. And one of the steps that was needed to, to do this hacking was to dilute the tiny finger stick samples to create more volume in the cup because these regular machines from, from good old Siemens could only test uh, a normal-sized sample of blood. Mm-hmm. And so you need a lot more sample for the machine to work. And so they diluted the finger stick blood to create more volume, and which that- itself caused all sorts of problems. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the process that it took to get people to speak to you and the threats of litigation and uh, everything against the journal. Um, How challenging was it to bring this story to light and ultimately to get it in print at the Wall Street Journal? By far the toughest story that I've ever done in 20 years, 20 plus years of reporting. Um, the, The challenge was twofold. It was getting sources to trust me and to talk to me, um, which was was very hard because uh, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, uh, they knew that Elizabeth Holmes and her company were very litigious, and they knew that the, the company's outside counsel was was David Boyes. America's uh, premier litigator. Right. And, and, and when you say litigious, not just, you know, everybody knows people who are litigious. These people were seem to be extremely aggressive and used all sorts of questionable approaches. Right. Elizabeth Holmes had sued former employees early on in 2000, as far back as 2007 for supposedly uh, stealing trade secrets. And then she had sued her childhood neighbor, uh, Richard Fuse, who had uh, patented a, a part of her vision um, that and that infuriated her. So she came up with a, a story that uh, he and his son had, had basically colluded to steal proprietary Theranos patent information uh, from a law firm. Where the um, son was working. Where the son was working, but there was never any proof right. whatsoever uh, that, that that ever happened. And, and personally, based on all my reporting, I believe that it never did happen and that those were false accusations. When you mentioned and- trade secrets... What trade secrets? They had nothing, no technology. Right. I mean, were, were there any trade secrets? And by the way, I'm relying primarily on your book when I say I don't see any trade secrets here. Am I wrong? No, there were. There weren't really any trade trade secrets. Was a is a technical excuse. definition of that? Isn't it, it? It it was basically a way to to say you know a we can't tell you what we have mm-hmm. because if we tell you about it. Our big competitors, Quest and LabCorp, are going to copy us, um, and and B, uh, you know, you all of your reporting, you have to either destroy it or or return it to us, uh, you know, because it's sensitive and it could do us great harm. These were the arguments that that Theranos and David Boyes used to try to get us to kill my reporting and to not publish the story. Well, uh, they were right; it was sensitive and it could do them great harm. However, there were no it doesn't seem like there was anything other than the bad behavior and fraud in the company that you revealed right and so it gave rise to a, a surreal 5 hour showdown at one point in in june of 2015 at the journal's offices in a conference room uh pitting me and my editor mike sicanolfi and mm-hmm. and our lawyer jake conti on one side of the table and david boys and two of his associates and and his former 
uh, Boyce Schiller partner, Heather King, who'd become the general counsel of Theranos. And we went around in, in circles for hours because, um, you know, I had sent them a list of questions ahead of time and I was trying to get answers to these questions. And they would say, well, we can't answer that question because it's a trade secret, it covers trade secrets. And, and of course, uh, my questions went to the essence of whether Theranos really had technology and really was using proprietary technology to do its blood tests. Based on my sources, my confidential sources, it wasn't. So I would ask things like, how many of the 250 blood tests on your menu are you doing right now with Theranos proprietary technology? And they would say, we can't answer that. That's a trade secret. And I said, oh, well, are you using any uh, third-party machines by the likes of Siemens to do any of these tests? We can't answer that. That's a trade secret. And it got to a point where I said, well, you know, how can how can using a third-party machine made by another company and modifying it be a trade secret? That's not inventing anything. That's not doing anything new. And again, you know, we'd go around in circles. I described the, the scene in the book, and I think it's chapter 21, and I felt like I was watching a performance of the theater of the absurd. Um, and, and toward the end of that meeting, boys let us know that, that he'll, he would be sending us correspondence, written correspondence. Oh, I've gotten um. <laughs> written correspondence from him. Let me share a quick story. So I write a review of the book, and I talk about all the red flags for investors. Not really concerned so much about um, uh, the the details of the litigation. Now, I do say that some people's reputation suffered. I mentioned George Schultz. I mentioned David Boyce. We get a nasty gram from Boyce and uh, his legal um, firm. And I have to tell you, I, I was genuinely shocked that my opinion column, based on your book, uh, generated this intellectually disingenuous thing full of, like, uh, you made all that stuff up. I had to go through your book page by page. This is page 278. This is page 263. This is page. Uh, it was a very bizarre experience. What was the rest of your experiences like fighting boys? He's got a reputation as literally the premier litigator in the country. Right. And uh, so after that five-hour showdown, we got a first letter uh, that hinted at uh, litigation threats if we didn't immediately return or destroy the the supposed trade secrets that I had obtained through my reporting. And then a few days later, a uh, I, I believe it was a 26-page uh, letter that was uh, just this this assault on my journalistic integrity and this attempt to, to portray me as a rogue reporter that uh, the, the journal should disown. And, um, and at the end of that letter, it was very explicit that uh, if we continued to proceed with my reporting, that uh, the journal would be sued. And uh, even as these increasingly threatening letters land, um, some of my st sources start either going dark mm -hmm. or calling me petrified because uh, they tell me they're being followed um, and they're being threatened as well. Uh, one of my sources, it has since emerged, uh, was Tyler Schultz, uh, a young man who was the grandson of the former Secretary of State, George Schultz, who was a member of the Theranos board. T Tyler is essentially the hero of the he's book. He's a hero. I wouldn't say he's the only a hero. hero. Okay. Uh, I, would, I would say another guy uh, whom I refer to as Alan Beam in the book, who's 
the ex-lab director, that's a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say he, he's arguably the bigger hero because he was the first to, to talk to me and to, and to launch my investigation. But Tyler is absolutely a hero in this. And uh, Tyler had worked at the company for eight months, become convinced uh, during his stint there, based on what he'd saw, seen and heard, that the company was a fraud, tried to alert his grandfather, tried to talk sense into him, hadn't been able to, and then had 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 to keep that all bottled up for a year until I came along and made contact with him. And then he became a corroborating source. And after that five-hour meeting, um, or in fact, it was, it was a little bit before even, but unbeknownst to me, uh, uh, two Boyce Schiller attorneys ambushed Tyler at his grandfather George's house off the Stanford campus and tried to get him to sign documents uh, essentially, uh, you know, acknowledging that he'd been a, a source for the journal and naming uh, other journal sources. And uh, at that point uh, began a, a three or four month campaign of threats and intimidation against Tyler. Um, he had to hire his own counsel. Uh, with the Did help they of threaten his... to bankrupt him? Well... They, at one point, a, a lawyer uh, for Boyce Schiller named Mike Brill uh, threatened to uh, uh, bankrupt Tyler Schultz's entire family if he didn't sign the documents that Theranos wanted him to sign. And the documents were an affidavit where uh, he basically acknowledged having talked to me and 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 uh, said it was an essential, uh, essentially a recanting of everything he told me. And then they also wanted him to to name my sources. And, and Tyler never signed any of these documents despite these these uh, outrageous threats uh, that were made and, uh, you know, stood firm. And in large part, thanks to him, I was able to go to print months later with my first story, which broke the scandal open. That was in 2015. That was in 2015, yeah. Let's continue discussing the fall. So you have a couple of people who were insiders, um, George Schultz's grandson, Tyler. Uh, There was a woman who worked with him, who worked in the lab. Erica Chung. Who, who apparently was scared out of her mind. Right. What, what happened with her? What did she do? What was she sharing with you? And, and right. what happened? Why, what were the intimidation attempts with so, her? So Boys and his henchmen came to the journal's offices, I think, I believe it was on a Tuesday in late June. And that Friday, three days later, uh, Erica was working at her new employer. She had left Theranos. She had left Theranos, in fact, the day after Tyler had left Theranos a year prior, and she was now working at a new company. So it's a year after she quit. Right. And she's working late at this new company, and I think it was Sunnyvale, California. And one of her colleagues taps her on the shoulder and says, you know, there's a man uh, who's been waiting outside for a long time saying he wants to talk to you. And so her sort of alarm bells start ringing in her head because the the uh, head of human resources at uh, Theranos, uh, this woman, Mona, who was, uh, you know, uh, part of the inner circle mm-hmm. uh, uh, with with Elizabeth Holmes and, and Sonny Balwani, had been trying to reach her and leaving increasingly frantic messages that day. And so immediately uh, Erica was on her guards. And so she asked the colleague who had tapped her on the shoulder to accompany her to her car as she left the office. Uh, which the colleague did. And when they walked out of the building, uh, a young man came out of a black SUV and made a beeline toward them and handed to Erica an envelope. Uh, And the envelope contained uh, a letter, a very aggressive letter signed by David Boyes, threatening to sue her for disclosing trade secrets and giving her an ultimatum, which is that she had to meet with him and his 
uh, Boy Schiller Associates by a certain day and a certain time, or she would be sued. But before she even got to the letter, what freaked her out the most was that the envelope had uh, her name and, and an address uh, typed on it. And the address was uh, a house in East Palo Alto of a colleague uh, at her new company that she had been staying at for less than two weeks because Erica had planned on moving to China. Uh-huh. And so she had given up the lease on her uh, place in Oakland uh, just a couple of weeks prior and started staying with a colleague, basically shacking at a colleague's house mm-hmm. uh, in East Palo Alto. And no one knew she was staying there except for the colleague. Her mother didn't even know she was staying there. So there was absolutely no way to have known this were this was her new address without having followed her. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so she goes home that, that evening, Friday evening, petrified and stays inside this this house in East Palo Alto with the blind closed all weekend, doesn't dare go out. And then first thing on Monday morning, she calls me and she's terrified. And she tells me what has happened. And um, I'm in my car at that point, double parked on a street in, in Brooklyn, uh, waiting for the street sweeping truck to go by. That's one of the, the better aspects of uh, living in New York City. Uh, Alternate side of the yes, street park. Yes, I'm being ironic. Um, and uh, so I, I answer the phone and it's her and, and we talk and I realize that she's right. There's no way, I, right. I try to run through the, the scenarios and the permutations, there's no way anyone could have known that was her address without having her followed. How many people in the book felt like they were being followed? How many participants in the book or that you didn't might not have printed? At least three Mm -hmm. Uh, Alan Beam, the ex-lab director, again, that's a pseudonym, Uh, Tyler Schultz and Erica all either got word that they were being followed or strongly suspected they were being followed or had evidence or had reason to believe that they were being followed. And what about the fuses? Was there any any suspicion? Right. The fuses had had come to uh, the conclusion that they were being followed by PIs, but that was several years prior during the uh, the, litiga- the patent litigation that mm-hmm. had pitted them against Theranos. So something interesting that was brought up from that, Boys won the patent litigation right. and was paid not in, in cash, but in Theranos stock. I was very surprised by that. Is that common in legal circles or Silicon Valley? I know in Silicon Valley it's not unusual, but in patent litigation, how, how common or uncommon is that? I mean, I... I don't think it's very common. Um, and uh, for me, when I learned about it, I, I learned about it, uh, I think it was in the, in the winter of uh, 2016, a couple months after my first story was published. I thought it was a huge conflict of interest because here you had uh, a lawyer and his law firm that owned almost five million uh, shares, you know, or actually five million dollars, five, five right? million dollars million worth dollars? of shares. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, he was no longer just the legal advocate of Theranos. He also uh, had uh, skin in the game financially. Right. And I felt- Self-interest, not mere advocacy on behalf right. of the client. And, and uh, you know, I, I strongly felt that that was a, a conflict of interest. And uh, I, wonder other if that, peop- I wonder if that clouds a lawyer's judgment in some of the things you describe if people do that when they're representing clients as opposed to I don't trying see, to protect their own I money. don't see how can they can say that it doesn't. Right. And I don't see how it doesn't. It, it, it has to. I mean, you're, you're no you're, longer objective. You're protecting a, a pile of $5 million that, by the way, you accepted in lieu of, of regular compensation because you expected that pile to grow as the stock and the valuation mm-hmm. of the company grew. 
to, to hear them if they come out and say so um you know say that that this didn't influence how they behaved and 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 how they they worked for theranos i think uh, i would maintain as hogwash so here let's talk put some flesh on on the bones about the dollar value of uh theranos and and what people why people thought it could go to the moon um at its peak what was the most the company was worth 10 billion dollars and how much money had investors put into it so if you count the, the uh, money that was loaned by uh, the private equity firm Fortress uh, Investment Group uh, mm-hmm. late last year to keep Theranos afloat, that was $65 million. If you count that cash injection, uh, almost a billion dollars. Wow. And so that's a, you, immediately you're talking about a 10x return if, if, it, if it keeps going. The thing that keeps coming up uh, as I was working my way through the book was there's no there there. There's there's really there was this initial idea, and then there was no new science developed. There was no new technology developed. It it was shocking. At what point did the outside world, before your columns, start to think, hey, there's a fraud here? Where, where did the red flag start appearing outside of the- of? John Kerry Rue's right, journalism. Right. No, there were grumblings among uh, people in the laboratory science uh, profession. Uh, in fact, w- one of the uh, early voices uh, was a guy at Stanford, um, uh, John Ioannidis, uh, laboratory uh, medicine um, a professor at, at Stanford. And in fact, uh, he and I recently had a testy exchange by email because he was angry that I hadn't mentioned him in my book. Um, and, and I told him uh, that, that I apologized for the omission, uh, but I said at the same time, you know, he, he had essentially written an opinion piece in uh, the journal uh, of uh, the Association for, or the American Medicine Medical Association, mm-hmm. JAMA, um, and I believe it was in February or March of uh, 2015, um, and I had become aware of it about a month into my reporting on the company. And really what he does in this piece is, is uh, he raises the question of whether Theranos should be allowed to do what he termed stealth research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, uh, and he, he posed qu- hard questions about uh, this trend toward uh, companies in Silicon Valley uh, bypassing the traditional system of peer-reviewed publication. Uh, which was totally valid, and and you know he put his finger on something, uh, but what I did respond to him uh, was you know it's one thing to raise some of these questions, it's another thing to prove that the company was a fraud, <laughs> right. and I think he had, he could agree that um, that you know I did the heavy lifting to 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 prove that. The the two biggest red flags that leapt out to me from the book, the initial board of directors, nobody from medicine, blood sciences, lab. It's all, it's two secretary of states. It's people from the defense. It's like a run of crazy things. Nobody from medicine. Right. Um, I mean, Eventually they add somebody years later, but. It, there, were, there were two out of, I think, 12 old men, old white men on the board. Uh, there were two who had some connection to medicine. One was uh, Bill Frist, who had once been a transplant surgeon before becoming a politician. But not from the beginning, right? Wasn't he a later addition? No, no, no. He was there. From um, the beginning? Not from the beginning, but the board changed over the years. Right. I mean, the, the, the last iteration of the board essentially dated back to uh, 2011, 2012, 2013. So almost a decade after they started, it seemed yeah. like. Yeah, she, she acquired this new board 
um, because she felt that it would help her. It was sort of an exercise in reputational laundering. Right. You know, she attracted these larger-than-life figures with fantastic resumes. And then the other uh, thing that was a giant red flag was all of the healthcare, medical sciences, medical device, venture capitalists, every one of them took a pass. Not a one put any money in this. Right, system. because either, she, because either uh, she wouldn't meet with them or when she did accept meetings and, and some of these people started asking hard questions— um, her interest in continuing to meet, uh, you know, waned and, and basically evaporated. We're speaking to John Carreyrou. He is the author of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things fraudulent at Theranos. Uh, you can find that wherever your finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, and of course, Bloomberg.com. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I really enjoyed reading the book. It reads like a thriller. As you're going through it, it, it it's just, what? That That's just astounding. It, it's mind-blowing. Um, I'll come back to some of the red flags. I have a ton of other questions. But I have to ask you, how much fun was this to write? You know, it was a lot of uh, fun. It, it was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life, uh, professionally or, or probably otherwise. Um, it was nerve-wracking at the very beginning uh, because, you know, I had a, a book deal and a movie deal, too. Wait, uh, when did the movie deal start? The, Before the, the book was written? Right, because the I reached my deal with Knopf to do the book. I think it was in March uh, late March of 2016, and then the movie deal came less than three months later. Mm -hmm. And I only went on book leave and started writing the book in around October of 2016. Wow. So I had this pressure uh, from the, these two deals and from the fact that I had never written a book before. And, uh, you know, that's that easy. You just keep going. <laughs> you write a column, but you don't stop till you got 150,000 words. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, it, it wasn't easy staring at a, a blank word document at first. But once I got a couple chapters in uh, and I got the, I felt like I was in a rhythm and I mm -hmm. was immersed. Uh, and by the way, I was continuing to do a lot of reporting because the first three quarters of the, of the book are told in the third person and are the, what happens at the company until I come along. And I had to re report a lot of that. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, tons of new material came out of that reporting process. So I was really reporting and writing at the same time. And it was just uh, so fun and fulfilling. And and I'm glad that uh, to hear you say that it read like a thriller because I tried to, to make it read uh, like a page turner. I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm a big uh, fan of Agatha Christie and... Uh, uh, you know, I, I also uh, read people like uh, Michael Crichton and, and Dan sure. Brown, um, and uh, you know I've picked up on some of their uh, some of their techniques to 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 keep the reader interested, and I channeled some of that as I was writing this book. No, no doubt about it. The um, I, I get more questions I want to circle back to, but I have to describe get into the whole back and forth with the Wall Street Journal's 
editors and the threats of litigation. And then the last minute Hail Mary Elizabeth Holmes pulled with Rupert Murdoch, of all, of all people, who, who owns the Wall Street Journal. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Your editors sound like they're great. They seemed really stand up, and there was never any, Carrie, what the hell are you doing to us? You're going to get a suit. Come on. This is crazy. Tell us what the process was like in the newsroom. Right. So my editor uh, is a guy named Mike Sikonolfi, who, who's been- uh, Old school, right? Yeah. He's been at the Wall Street Journal since, I think, the 1800s. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm right. kidding. I, I, uh, it I, didn't start till the 1890s, so him, it can't- I tease him a lot about how long he's been at the Journal. I think he actually joined the Wall Street Journal in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a legend at the, the Journal, and he is loved and admired, uh, and it's for good reason. He, he's uh, a real journalist, uh, loves to do hard-hitting stories and to back reporters who are on to hard-hitting stories. Um, and he's also great in the sense that he knows uh, to, to let you have a long leash mm-hmm. and to follow your no- nose. He doesn't try to micromanage you. And uh, uh, early in 2015, I think it was February 1st or 2nd week, I had gotten the tip from the pathology blogger uh, coming on top of the New Yorker story that had raised questions in my mind. I went to Mike and I said, I think potentially there's a story here and I think potentially it could be a really sexy big story. And he sort of listened to me summarize um, what I thought the story might be. And he was like, go ahead, you know, try it for a couple of weeks and then just give me an update in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And and that's how the process started. And, and uh, you know, when I gave him the next update, it was probably two or three weeks later, and I had made uh, some headway. And so then he was like, well, keep going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so he's a great editor for sure. What what about when the nasty grams start to show up? I have to tell you, when I got mine, and it's nothing like what you're – I wrote a book review. Someone didn't like my book review. I got a, 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 a three-page letter. But you, my immediate reaction is, oh, my God, I totally screwed up. What did I do? And then I start reading through, and I'm like, wait, wait a second. That, that's, not, that's not true. Everything in, I wrote in there, you said henchman. I used the word thug. But more or less, everything in there in my review came right for your book. In fact, normally I don't do that. When I do my – here are the 10 books I'm going to read this summer or this winter. And I read a book, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting, and I put it aside. But I so totally enjoyed the story. I'm like, there are red flags everywhere. There are lessons for investors. I'm going to write something. Like, that. not my usual approach. And I wrote it never in a million years expecting we're going to get a letter. But this, you, you, you get the email, and it shakes you. You're like, holy cow, what did I do? And for a microsecond, it's, I really, I screwed the pooch. I really did something <laughs> terrible here. And then it took about 10 seconds before... Wait, no, I, I literally shut the book and started dictating on my iPhone because I was on the beach in the Hamptons, got home, po- wrote it up that night, polished it the next morning, off it went. It was literally, the book could not have been more fresh in my mind before that before that column. And so after the, the letter came, after I kind of finally like took a deep breath, figured out all the page citations that were being complained about. You made this stuff up. No, I didn't. It's right from the book. I stopped and I said, what was it like when Carrie, uh, my nothing little book review, you're breaking major news stories. You're breaking stories that ultimately leads to the 
revealing of fraud. So we have we haven't even talked about the SEC and the other litigation that's going on. But you basically brought down a company that A was a fraud, B was putting people's life and safety at risk. If you get a false positive, well, you it scares the hell out of you, but there's no danger. If you get a false negative, if they miss something because they this thing doesn't work, people die. So what was it like when these letters started coming in, these nasty grams start coming in? I can't imagine the process you went through. Right. It was stressful. I mean, uh, uh, some of your colleagues who've interviewed me about the book have asked whether I, there was any moment where I felt uh, in physical danger. And I don't think there was any moment that I, I felt in physical danger. I mean, there were moments when I'd come out of my uh, apartment building in Brooklyn and I'd look left and right to see if I could spot anyone uh, following me. Do, do you think you were followed? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. My I think assumption is they do a full if, online search if and they pull had, whatever they can. If they had someone following me and that comes out, I will not be surprised. But I can't say uh, one way or another whether they mm. did or not. I just don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel physically threatened. My biggest source of stress was that this scorched earth campaign to intimidate my sources and turn them and to also intimidate the paper, that it would be fruitful and that they would succeed in destroying the, the scaffolding of reporting upon which I had built this story, mm-hmm. and that ultimately, um, you know, the story wouldn't come out. That was, for me, that was the big source of stress. And I finally, you know, breathed a sigh of relief when the story was in the paper. I think it was October uh, 15th, mm-hmm. uh, 2015. And then I didn't, I didn't really have time to, to bask in it very long because then I immediately... You know, uh, on to the next one. I was on to the to the to the first follow up story, which we published that very night, um, and uh, you know, from there it was uh, months and months of more follow up reporting, and I think uh, with each week that passed and with each regulatory inspection and finding, we were vindicated more and more, and until recently, you know, the criminal charges that were filed by the uh, Justice Department. Uh, the wire fraud, fraud charges filed against Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani by the Justice Department really, you know, were the ultimate uh, vindication that my reporting was correct and that I'd been right all along. What about the state of California? Did they do any criminal investigation? Did any? It all took place mo- uh, primarily in California. Right. Uh, are they getting a pass by the state? Well, if you it depends if you count. Uh, the the U.S. Attorney's Office in mm-hmm. San Francisco as a federal, B- it's not state. Okay, so then if you don't count them, California did, did nothing. That's shocking. I mean, this is a serious fraud. It's a billion dollars in investor money. Not counting, um, not counting the fortress stuff after the fact. Right. So it's almost a billion dollars, and the risk to individuals. You know, one of in the book, you describe uh, the Theranos people, and I don't remember if it was the lawyers or others, intimidating some of the doctors who had, had used this. Uh, that was Sonny Bowen. That, that was the number two executive of the company, the president of the company, who was the boyfriend of the founder. Secret boyfriend of the founder. Secret boyfriend of the founder. She was hiding it from everyone, including her own board. Flew out to Phoenix and proceeded to intimidate and threaten all the doctors who had spoken to me on the record. And how did they know the names of those doctors? Because they had asked that we uh, give them information uh, about the doctors and patients and their blood test results, so that they could uh, rebut them and respond to them. Which is natural. I mean, we you know you right. you have to have the 
the party that you're investigating and writing about has to have the opportunity to respond. And so we did that. And what did they do? Rather than responding, they went and they used the information to find the people and threaten them. And didn't one of the doctors pretty much tell them to go jump? I thought one of the doctors was real stand-up in the book. There were a couple of doctors who, who uh, either refused to, to meet with them or, or uh, told them, uh, you know, one, one comes to mind, Dr. Adrian Stewart, who, uh, who two, had two colleagues who had uh, buckled under pressure and signed these uh, statements, essentially recanting what they told me. Uh, she wasn't there when her two stewards, when her two colleagues uh, were chickened presented out. with those yeah. statements and chickened out. And uh, she came back a week later, by which time I had managed to reach her. And so she was prepared uh, to be uh, assailed, which she was as soon as she got back by Sonny Balwani. And she stood, you know, she, she refused to sign uh, the, the document that he put to her, even though he told her, if your name appears saying anything about Theranos in a Wall Street Journal story, we will drag your reputation through the mud. Nice guy. Good for her. She, she's another one of the, the heroes in the book. So I have to bring up the, the Hail Mary that Elizabeth Holmes pulled with Rupert Murdoch, who, owner of Fox News, of which Wall Street Journal is part of uh, all the one Wait, of the business I, holdings. Wait, I have to correct you. Now well, it's been split, right. blah, blah, blah. Wall Street Journal is part of News Corp, which News is Corp. a separate company, now, and right. Fox is part of 21st Century Fox. Right, so this is, at the time, it was a single entity. This is pre-split, right? No, this was post-split. Oh, it was? Yeah, the split okay. was 2013. Oh, really? All yeah. right, so yeah. part of News Corp, an investor in Theranos, right. and the day before publication, was it October 14th? 2015? No, it's two weeks before publication, She and she had already done this uh, once a month or two prior when she'd invited Murdoch to come to uh, Theranos offices in Palo Alto, and she'd raised my story with him and told him I had gathered all this information that was false, uh, misleading, and that would do great damage to the company if it was published. And she well, invited- she's right about that, the she, last one, the latter. <laughs> she invited him to kill it, and he demurred, told her that you know, he trusted the journal's editors to do the right thing and didn't want to involve himself. And then she came again uh, late September, I think it was September 30th, uh, two weeks before my first story was published. She wow. met with him in his eighth floor office in his News Corp building. Your uh, office is where? On fifth floor. So three floors above Three you. floors above me. She was there meeting with him one-on-one, raising my story with him urgently again, hoping that he would volunteer to, to kill it. And uh, he did no such thing, despite uh, having 125 million reasons to do so. $125 million <laughs> investment in Theranos. Right. Eventually, Murdoch, to his credit, so the story publishes, some years later, Murdoch sells his interest back to the company for a dollar. Right. So, so he gets the tax write-off. A, a year and a half later, uh, approximately, sells his stake back in the company to the to the company for a symbolic dollar so that he can use that huge loss to uh, write off uh, taxes on other earnings. But um, there was an addendum to that uh, buyback deal, which was that if Theranos settled any litigation with uh, a, a, an investor who felt they had been defrauded for more than $40 million, then Murdoch would be entitled to another payment of $4 million. And so that the, he did get that additional $4 million later oh, really? because Theranos settled with the San Francisco Hedge Fund Partner Fund that mm-hmm. had invested $100 million. Uh, Theranos settled with them for $43 million 
in the in the spring of 2017, and so that entitled Murdoch to another four million. So he got four million plus one dollar. Huh. So he's still, in other words, he still lost 121 million dollars. Amazing. Um, th- there's a couple of other elements I wanted to ask. There's Safeway and Walgreens. These companies had such a bad case of FOMO. Yeah, they spent a ton of money because they were afraid their competitors would get in over them, despite never seeing the machine, never getting the technology or the science. Well, they, you, they saw the machine, but she would do these these fake demos. Again, never saw the real machine. They saw well, no. They saw they saw the real machine, but there was a de- what they called this secret demo protocol, where the the Walgreens or the Safeway representative, or sometimes the board member, or even the journalist came and had you know saw the the mini lab uh, which was this big black box uh with a digital uh, uh interface and they'd have their finger pricked and the small uh, finger stick sample would be put in this cartridge which itself would be slotted into the mini lab machine the mini lab machine would be turned on and the testing would you'd hear the whirring of the machine right. and so you'd think the testing has started and they'd say this is going to take a while why don't you go out for lunch or visit the rest of the building or uh, meet with Elizabeth in her office and then uh, we'll get you your test result. And so the the person, uh, Walgreens Safeway or board member, would leave the room and then when they were out of sight, uh, a Theranos employee would stop the, the Theranos uh, mini lab, uh, take the cartridge out, take the blood sample out of the cartridge and bring it to the Theranos lab where they w- would either t- test it manually at the bench or run it on one of the hacked Siemens analyzers. So if someone says, uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. I got my phone. I'm going to just stay busy. I just want to watch this machine work. Nothing right. would have happened? The, well, they, yeah, you would have been pr- pretty much, without saying so, calling their bluff. And yeah. I, I'm sure they would have come up with you know, some... Um, uh, excuse to get you out of the room at some point, so that so that they could pull off their sleight so, of hand. So this is this has been a deep fraud from let's call it oh six oh seven. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean you you could argue that the fraud didn't matter as much until two thousand thirteen, as long as the company remained in R and D mode and, right, and never cares? went live with the technology. Well, the investors care, but... right? But the second uh, you commercialize the technology and you start offering it to the public, which is what started happening in the fall of two thousand thirteen, then it becomes a gigantic fraud, because it's not just investors who are being defrauded, but it, it's the the public that's being put in harm's way. And that, and that's really, you know, I think that's what elevates this scandal uh, and puts it in, in the pantheon of, of uh, you know, modern financial scandals. Let, let's talk about the Army and Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker, a no-nonsense guy with a medical background who has right. to approve all of these um, uh, experimental R&Ds. Holmes, but, or whoever it was, bumps into him when trying to get this approved for the army, right. and this guy doesn't take any BS, right. sees right through it practically from the beginning. Tell right, us because, about him. Well, he didn't. He didn't necessarily uh, think that the, the technology didn't work. He didn't know whether it worked or not. Um, but what he felt strongly about was that this device needed to be approved by the FDA. Right. It's a that, medical device right. for testing blood. How couldn't it be approved? Right. And, and, and the FDA approves all laboratory testing equipment that labs buy. And so he felt that the Theranos device was no exception. Right. And so what he really had a problem with was this regulatory strategy that Elizabeth Holmes had um, you know, uh, presented device, him yeah. with in, in 
2011, a couple months after she had met Mattis and, and wrapped Mattis around her finger and gotten Mattis to back this notion that the Theranos technology would be used in the field in Afghanistan. Mm. And for that to happen, it had to go through Lieutenant Colonel Shoemaker at Fort Detrick uh, in Maryland uh, because he was the guy uh, who had to approve such experiments. So this Lieutenant Colonel gets a phone call from a four-star general, is that right? Right. And so, yeah, later, you know, he had these, has these these clash, diplomatic clashes with Elizabeth, and it becomes clear uh, to her that she's not going to be able to steamroll him. And but so she appeals to to Mattis and she uh, emails him. And at that point, he's actually in the war theater in Afghanistan. And uh, uh, she uh, oh, because what what's happened by then is that Shoemaker has not only resisted uh, what she wants to do, uh, he has passed on uh, what's he, what he's learned about the Theranos regulatory approach to the FDA and to CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and CMS has dispatched an inspector to do a surprise visit, and uh, Elizabeth is furious about this, and so she writes Mattis, who's in Afghanistan, and Mattis gets her email. He's furious, and so in August of 2012, Shoemaker has to fly down with an FDA official to Tampa, Florida, uh, which is you know the headquarters of the Central Command, because Mattis at that point was the uh, head of the Central Command, <laughs> and he has to meet with Mattis and explain to this uh, legendary journal uh, general. Uh, general. I'm sorry uh, that uh, you know that that he can't say yes to what this uh, general wants, uh, and and here's why. And so he and this um, FDA official named Alberto Gutierrez go and brief Mattis. Um, and they reach a compromise, which is that a Theranos can, the Theranos experiment can proceed only if it's using, after the fact, leftover de-identified samples from wounded soldiers, wounded or healthy for that matter. And, um, and In so other that, words, they could feed it into it if they want a big sample of blood to run tests, but nobody in the field is relying on this for medical decisions. Exactly, exactly. And so, but that, you know, that opens a window for, for Theranos to do this. And inexplicably, over the ensuing months, uh, Theranos can never seem to get its act together to, to get this study protocol written and ready um, and, and, and then, you know, everyone retires. Mattis retires, uh, his, uh, aide de camp retires, uh, Shoemaker ends up retiring, uh, mid 2013. Um, uh, the live experiment in the field in Afghanistan that Elizabeth wanted, uh, never ends up happening. And in wait, part- wait, 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 why would she want a live, is she still under the illusion this damn thing works? Is like, how delusional is she? She thinks that. It sort of works, and then in the end, just a few tweaks, right? That you know will iterate, and uh, and and basically, what she has her eyes on is two things. She has her eyes on the potentially huge new revenue stream that uh, a contract with the Pentagon, of course, uh, would bring, and she has her eyes on the validation of Theranos that she would get by by virtue of being a uh, supplier of this technology to the Pentagon. And what year is this? This is 2012, 2013. So when did the Safeway and the uh, Walgreens deals fall apart? So the Walgreens deal only fell apart uh, after my revelations, and it took a long- 2015? Not even, 2016, really. I mean, it fell apart in steps. 
but they really, uh, you know, ended the whole thing in 2016. I think it was the the summer of 2016. Just a big 300 million dollar write off, or whatever it was. It was 140 million that okay. Walgreens put in Theranos. But I mean, but I, what about the renovation? Who did the big renovation? The, the, renovation was Safeway. Safeway mm-hmm. loaned Theranos 30 million, but on on the side, in addition to that loan, it renovated. Uh, these these uh, clinics inside its supermarkets and, and about 800 of its supermarkets uh, in anticipation of, you know, having the Theranos technology offered there. And that renovation cost $350 million. Wow. So well, at least they got new paint and carpet. It's uh, <laughs> amazing. Um, the other two, before I get to my standard questions, the other two um, sort of frauds that, that stood out that was surprising one was the Johns Hopkins letter. They com- right. They, they, t- explain the the faux endorsement. Right. So uh, she goes to uh, uh, Walgreens has hired uh, Johns Hopkins as sort of a consultant as it's uh, beginning to set up this partnership with Theranos, and so in I believe it's uh, May of two thousand ten. Elizabeth and her boyfriend, Sonny, uh, go to the Johns Hopkins campus to meet with several Hopkins officials, among them laboratory scientists. And they come with what is then the Edison, the black and white uh, device, and they come with binders full of data. Um, And they explain, you know, what the device does, and they show these binders with these uh, graphs uh, that show, you know, it's basically a, a diagonal line that shows a very uh, tight correlation between the, the data from the Theranos tests and regular technology with, you know, regular venous draws. And, and that was a scam also. And that was a scam. Those were fa- fake graphs and fake data. <laughs> um, but they met for a couple hours and, uh, you know, the, the, the meeting at Theranos' request gave rise to a two-page letter, not even two pages, a page and a half which was essentially a summary of the meeting minutes from the meeting saying this meeting happened and you know what Theranos has described sounds interesting and by the way there's like small boilerplate uh, at the end of the second letter saying you know this is in no way an endorsement by Johns Hopkins of of any uh, Theranos technology and she then uses this over the ensuing two or three years to claim that uh, Theranos' technology has been independently verified and validated by the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. <laughs> and everyone falls for it. Nobody calls up Johns Hopkins and says, it seems that's, right. this is a stunning thing. Right. Time and time and time again, there are these statements made, these claims made. Right. Nobody does due diligence. Nobody sees the technology. Nobody sees the actual, well, open up the machine. I can't. Right. Like, I would have... It's one clear of, why the VCs walked, because you have to show us this or we right. can't give you money. This, is not, this isn't a negotiating tactic. Right. It's, it's show it us or we're out, because that's how we run. Yeah, the, the, one of the Hopkins lab scientists who attended the, this meeting back in the spring of 2010, at the end of the meeting, said to Elizabeth, you know, this is all well and good, uh, but, you know, for us to really do uh, rigorous verification, you would need to send us one of your devices. Either you could leave this one or ship another one of them to us, and then I'll want to have it in my lab for several months and put it, you know... Put it through its paces. Put it through its paces and compare it with the the diagnostic equipment that I have in my lab. And uh, so he encouraged her to do that, and she said she would. And of course, it never... She promised a lot of stuff. It never happened. Never does. Never happened. She promised data she never delivered. She promised documentation never delivered. 
But we know why, because this thing was a fraud right. for years and years right. before. How do you live like that? How does somebody not expect to get caught? You know, again, in her mind, goes back to the way that she channeled the traditional Silicon Valley. And again, the, what I think of as the traditional Silicon Valley is the industry that grew out of the computer chip industry, then became, you know, the personal computer revolution and then the internet boom. And now it's the smartphone. That's the traditional Silicon Valley. It's mm -hmm. based on coding, computer programming. Right. And it's true that there's been a lot of uh, faking it until you make it. There's been a lot of exaggerating, making exaggerated vaporware. claims. Vaporware. to get the funding that you need to, to make the product happen. And she, I think, because she modeled herself after Jobs and to a lesser extent Larry Ellison, she thought, you know, th th this is the, the rule book that everyone goes by in Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. like... It's not a big deal if I go by it, too. Shocking. So last question on her. Prepping for this, I watched a couple of videos. And she always seems to speak like this in all of her videos. It's this sort of weird baritone. And I read a number of other articles that suggest that she faked this deep voice for reasons known apparently only to herself what is the story with that? Is that her real voice? Is that faked? Is this trying to be a woman in a man's world? Like, what is what is the deal with that? It's not her real voice. Um, and uh, how do we know that for sure? So I'll I'll give you at least four data points. One <laughs> is an anecdote that I tell in the book. I think it's in uh, chapter eight of the book, where a uh, an employee who's just been hired uh, to as an to work as an engineer on the mini lab. Uh, meets with her in, in early 2011, and the meeting is at the end of a long day. She's excited that he's there, and they're making progress on building this machine. And uh, she, she closes the meeting by getting up and, and taking her coat off her chair. And as she goes toward, you know, to open the door uh, of her office to see him out, uh, she lapses out of her baritone. She forgets to put on the baritone and lapses into a, a much more natural sounding young woman's voice. Mm -hmm. And he's totally startled at this point because uh, he's only heard her with the baritone. And he, he realizes at that point that the, the voice is fake. He kind of turns it in his head over the next couple of days and realizes, you know, she must have decided this was necessary because uh, Silicon Valley is a man's world, right. and she dropped out as this young woman, and that was so unusual, she must have felt along the way that it was necessary to get people's attention. Now, the other data points I have are, one is that, um, as the book makes clear, uh, one of my sources for the book was Elizabeth's best friend at Stanford, uh, a young woman by the name of Chelsea Burkett. Um, and Chelsea says that Elizabeth's voice was nothing like that at Stanford <laughs> or, or even after Stanford. Um, and so Chelsea herself believes that the, the voice is fake. Um, a family member uh, uh, cooperated as well for the book, and I'm not going to say uh, this person's name, but uh, that person believes and, and uh, professes that he knows for a fact that the voice is fake. And then... There's probably the most conclusive proof is that there's an interview that she gave to the show Biotech Nation in uh, May of 2005. It's an NPR show. Uh -huh. um, and I have a recording of it. And she, at that point, she's 18 months out of Stanford. She's like 20 or 21 years old. Uh, she gives this interview to Maura Gunn. And um, uh, she sounds nothing like uh, the Elizabeth Holmes of uh, later years. She sounds like this... 
this this kid almost right. who, who's speaking very fast uh, in a, a much more natural sounding uh, young woman's voice uh, that's a couple of uh, pitches higher and uh, and you realize listening to that audio recording uh, that she uh, basically at a certain point after that decided to create a whole new persona for herself mm-hmm. and the, and the changing her voice was part of that new persona See, that she I, fashioned. I always thought when you close your B round, your voice changes and that, that could have had something to do with it. But <laughs> you're saying nothing to do with that whatsoever. It, it was for sure a very, uh, part of a very contrived attempt to project this, uh, you know, female Steve Jobs aura. Right. Which, which other than the... Other than the uh, the black turtleneck, there was just nothing in, in common whatsoever. But um, hey, what are you going to do? That that's was that was her um, attempt, and uh, just just astonishing. So I only have you for a couple more minutes. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all my guests. Before I do that, I just have to say we covered a ton of stuff. Anything you want to bring up, anything I might have missed you think is noteworthy? A funny uh, moment in this saga, which is uh, uh, 48 hours after my first story is published Mm -hmm. in October of 2015, um, Elizabeth and Sonny lead this uh, all-employee meeting. You have that in the book, and (laughs) it's amazing that people just go along with that. Yeah, and I was told that, you know, at least half of the employees in the audience— didn't go along with it and and uh, uh, couldn't believe that this was actually happening. Uh, but then you you did have some employees, many employees who did go along with it. And I think it speaks to the culture of hubris, uh, arrogance, uh, you know, us versus them. Mm-hmm. We're above everything, uh, even though we haven't really invented anything new. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, it really speaks to how broken, uh, the culture of that company was. F.U. Carriru is what Bawani and Holmes lead them on chanting. Right. And, and how long does this go on? I, and how I think many people was, told you about it? It was, it was just a couple of, uh, times, two or three chants. Um, and it had been preceded, there had been a precedent three months prior, uh, after Theranos had received FDA approval for one of its finger stick tests. One. Turned out the only finger stick test that it ever got approval for was a test to detect herpes, uh, which is actually a pretty easy test to do because it's just a test that says yes or no, do you right. have the disease? Um, so those tests are much much easier than, than most lab tests, which are quantitative tests. Anyways, Theranos had gotten this approval from the FDA and was very, very proud. And Sonny had led employees in the cafeteria in a chant which I actually have on tape because I have footage of that meeting. And he, yeah, he had the whole company yelling And at that point, the, the chant was uh, directed at Theranos' rivals, Quest and LabCorp, who were the, the two 900-pound gorillas in the, in the who, lab Who industry. never for a second thought this little pissant company with a fake technology was a— That's the most amazing thing is they think these are their rivals— and these two companies couldn't possibly care less about them. Well, I mean, by, by the time she became famous, they, they certainly uh, knew who she was. And, and I think it, 
uh, it didn't escape them that uh, the, the the valuation of Theranos first disclosed in Fortune magazine in June 2014 was nine billion, which was essentially the the same you know market capitalization that Quest and LabCorp had. So um, that had to get their their attention, and I know it did. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the um, the amount the the degree to which uh, Elizabeth and Sonny were obsessed with Quest and LabCorp uh, is uh, exponentially greater than uh, you know than how concerned Quest and LabCorp were with Theranos. But anyways, that first <laughs> chant was directed at Quest and LabCorp. And then three months later, when my story came out at the end of this meeting in which Elizabeth and Sonny had both been very defiant uh, about how my reporting was false and about how they would uh, take the fight to the journal and to the the journalist, uh, a uh, senior software engineer asked Sonny if he would lead them in a chant. And uh, no one, you know, uh, had to ask what the chant was. Everyone knew based on what had happened three months prior. And so Sonny was, of course, uh, very happy to oblige and uh, led the the company for a second time in a chant. Uh, And this time added my name after the F.U., which was uh, convenient because it rhymed. Amazing. John Carreyrou, your fake news. (laughs) Let's, um, that's what he should have said. Um. I think the book is not fake news, and it's absolutely fascinating. Let Let's jump to to our favorite questions, and I'm I'm going to skip around a little bit because I know we're tight on time. Tell us about some of your early mentors. So uh, I would cite a few people. One of them would be uh, my investigative team colleague, Mark Merrimont. Uh, mm-hmm. He's uh, still at the Wall Street Journal to this day and still does great work for the Wall Street Journal. Um, was he on he, one of the Pulitzer Prize winning teams that you... Uh, yeah, he was actually. Uh, he he uh, lead wrote uh, one of the stories that was in a, a package uh, on corporate scandals uh, in uh, 2002 that won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, explanatory reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I lead wrote another one of those stories. Um, but uh, he, he had been a mentor uh, several years prior on my first ever uh, investigative work, which was uh, unmasking a, a, a Belgian speech recognition software company called Learnout and Hospi, sure. which was the pride of Flanders back then. And I was based in Brussels, and, and Mark and another journal colleague named uh, Jesse Eisinger had um, uh, smelled a rat and... and uh, started writing about this company, and ne- they needed help from a reporter on the ground in Belgium, and sought out my help. And then we we uh, ended up, you know, spending uh, close to a year unraveling the fraud of this company. And I learned a ton from those two got two guys, especially uh, from Mark Merrimont. And uh, so he was a mentor. And then um, I, I'm going to name check another uh, former colleague, Mike Williams, who's mm-hmm. now the uh, investigative editor at. Um, at uh, Reuters, mm-hmm. and who's a longtime uh, Wall Street Journal uh, reporter and editor. Uh, he was my bureau chief in Paris uh, for several years, and he was later the page one editor of the journal. And then, of course, Mike Sikonolfi, who's my mm-hmm. current editor uh, on the invest- investigative team. I would mention that Eisinger went on to win the first online Pulitzer for his work at uh, ProPublica. That's right, yeah. So um, lot, lots of Pulitzer Prize... Uh, Winning journalists came out of uh, out of your shop. So, who? Um, let's talk about your favorite books. Bad Blood is your first book. 
what do you read? Who do you really enjoy? Fiction, nonfiction, right? Blood related or not? So um, I love uh, nonfiction, and I love uh, page turning nonfiction. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is a Civil Action, mm-hmm. uh, which I read in the in the late nineties. Uh, I think it's uh, the name of the author is Jonathan Har. I think he worked on that book for seven years. Wow. Um, uh, another uh, deeply reported book that I love is Black Hawk Down mm-hmm. by Mark Bowden. Uh, an amazing feat of uh, reporting, uh, reconstructing uh, what those soldiers went through in Somalia. Uh, just an unbelievable book. Um, I, I I loved uh, the the sort of definitive. Uh, nonfiction book about uh, Wall Street in the 80s, uh, Barbarians at the Gate, sure. which was uh, written by uh, uh, guys who at the time worked for the Wall Street Journal, uh, Brian Burrow and John Hellyar. They've uh, long since moved on. Um, I uh, am a big fan of uh, the former Wall Street Journal reporter and now uh, best-selling author Eric Larson. Um, among his books, uh, Devil in the White City. Oh, sure. Um, uh, the the latest that I led that I read uh, by him is about the Lusitania. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a terrific writer, uh, and I would say uh, uh, an influence in terms of writing uh, non nonfiction. Probably my my biggest influence. So, what has changed since you became a journalist twenty years ago? How do you how do you see the we know the industry, the business of journalism has changed. What do you see as different in the actual reporting? Well, I, the one obvious thing is the uh, rise of social media. Um, uh, it's it's there everywhere you turn. You know, uh, um, people you investigate are on social media or use social media. I use LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. to make contact with ex-Theranos uh, employees, one of them, Tyler Schultz. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that it's, 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 it's both a reporting tool, but it's also a disinformation tool, as we see hint-hint uh, with the current uh, administration. It, it's sort of a propaganda tool. I'm thinking of Twitter in particular. Um, uh, and uh, it's got other uh, sort of... Um, effects on our craft, uh, which some of which aren't so great, which is that journalists spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably mm-hmm. too much time on Twitter instead of actually doing work. Um, research. And, it's research. <laughs> right. And sometimes they opine on Twitter uh, in a way that that uh, compromises their objectivity uh, or perceived objectivity. Totally fair enough. Um, so yeah, social media has been a game changer, I think, for, for our profession, hmm. if I had to point to something. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So when I was a brand new uh, reporter at the Wall Street Journal Europe in Brussels back in, I think it was 1999, um, and the Wall Street Journal Europe back then was separate from the mothership. Um, we had these these European and Asian editions that were run separately. So I wasn't a full-fledged Wall Street Journal reporter. I was a Wall Street Journal Europe reporter. And uh, with respect to this uh, incident, it was a good thing. I, uh, a colleague and I uh, wrote a story about uh, a business deal that we thought, um, you know, we had learned about that, that was uh, basically turned out to be complete fiction. 
and it was like a, a comedy of errors. It, it was a, uh, uh, a merger, or so we thought, between uh, several post offices in Europe. And, um, you know, we had these sources who were, who were just, you know, these pseudo-sources who were several times removed from actual information, but who, uh, you know, told us that they thought they knew uh, what they couldn't have known because it wasn't true. And so we, we wrote this, this completely absurd story that was completely wrong and wow. erroneous. What was the takeaway? Um, it, what's that? What was your takeaway? No, my takeaway was that, um, you know, you can't, uh, you, you got to verify. Uh, I'm, re- I'm reading Cy Hirsch's um, um, uh, autobiography right now, and he has an expression for it that he learned at uh, City News in Chicago where he started out his career, uh, which is uh, check it out. You know, always <laughs> check it out. Uh, and we didn't do any checking. We just went with... Uh, what uh, you know, the first person we got on the phone told us, and the story was completely wrong. It was embarrassing, and frankly, I just I still don't understand why I wasn't fired for it. <laughs> and what is it that you know about investigative reporting today that you wish you knew twenty years ago? I mean, I think earlier in my career, I think uh, that I thought investigative reporting was uh, a glamorous craft. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this may sound. Um, corny, but um, one of the things that contributed to inspiring me to become a newspaper reporter was reading All the President's Men after college. I graduated in in 94, and that was one of the first books I read uh, after college. And, uh, you know, I think it made uh, investigative journalism and reporting seem glamorous to me. And what I would caution, you know, young people getting into this line of work is that uh, 99 to 100 percent of the time, it's not glamorous. It's digging, uh, you know, behind the scenes in the dark, in semi or complete obscurity, and um, you know, uh, hopefully, you 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 publish some some good stories. But oftentimes, the stories won't have as much impact as you would hope they would have. And you know, it can be thankless work and. Um, I would argue that it's also it also can be very rewarding work, but uh, you got to stick with it, and it's uh, a work that requires persistence and perseverance. Um, I don't know if I necessarily knew all those things when Fa- I started out. Uh, just just fascinating. Thank you, John, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with John Carreyrou, author of Bad Blood: Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, then look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever your finer podcasts are sold, and you can see any of our prior 200-plus conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff that helps to put together this conversation each week. Medina Parwana is our audio engineer slash producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker and producer. And Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 